a short and sweet one today, Matthew 2, 27 through 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us these past few weeks, then my guess is that you're aware of where this teaching text is going to lead us. Uh, we're about to wrap up our uh, practice on the Sabbath. This is the second to last teaching. Um, but, you know, if, if you're new or you still are like, gosh, I, I, I just want to be honest with you. I can't remember a single thing you've said about the Sabbath. Well, um, I have something here for you today, folks. A word, if you would. Um, yeah, re really, in route to Mark 2, I just want to say this. Here's a little refresher to remind you of what we're talking about when we're talking about the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, it is a literal 24-hour period in time where we cease all worry, work, and want by entering into God's rest with feasting and delight and worship. There's kind of four component parts. There's the ceasing. There's the resting, feasting, and delight. And that all of this is instituted in creation. It's seen in the Ten Commandments. It's like even in the Ten Commandments 2.0, it's Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Like we see it flowing out in creation. And it is a literal, not allegorical or figurative, a literal period, a place in time where we cease our labor and we respond to God's rest with feasting and delight in worship. In other words, in ceasing, that is like literally stopping, in ceasing, we allow the rhythm of creation to become our own. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth and all the stuff that filled them. And then on the seventh day, God rested. In turn, we willfully embrace our limits. That might be hard. I still remember the movie with Bradley Cooper, Limitless. Like that's so, like I, I was like, oh. The what-if scenarios I played out. After, if you don't know what this is, just watch the trailer. It basically tells you everything about the movie. You don't need to actually watch it. Uh, but just imagine if you used all of your brain all the time. There's the premise. And yet on Sabbath, we embrace that we, in fact, are finite. We embrace our limits. And um, we're not as important as we think we are. That is such a gift to me. Probably not to you, but to me, that is a gift to remember. I'm not as important as I think I am. Just as the day gives way to night, so too we cease and we say yes to God's rest and his loving action within us. But again, this is not the end of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not primarily about prohibition. The Sabbath is to open us up. As Abraham Joshua Heschel states, he says, the, the Sabbath is where the Spirit's precious metal can be found with which to construct the palace in time or like the cathedral in time the dimension in which the human is at home with the divine, a dimension in which man aspires to approach the likeness of the divine. I, I love this quote because this is like a time in human history where we're talking about uh, like the metaverse and AI and all of these alternate dimensions and people are curious about aliens. I mean, it's just like, what a beautiful time for this little quote to break into this moment. And I, I know that I'm kind of hitting the ground running here on the Sabbath. I'm just hopeful that you all have metabolized a little bit of what we've covered over the past few weeks. But just let your mind bend around Heschel's words for a moment. The Sabbath is like another dimension, but it's not like 
meta, the metaverse, or for the Gen Xers in the room, it's not like Sims. If you know, you know. It's, it's like, it's, it's true reality. And there, in the Sabbath palace, it's God, like the, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community of eternal love, opening God's heart to our own. It's this face-to-face, breath-to-breath reality to know us and be known by us. This is miraculous. Just listen to how Heschel goes on because this is beautiful. This is almost too good to be true, but it's not. It's real. We get to embrace it. Heschel says this, The Sabbath is the most precious present mankind has received from the treasure house of God. I'm not, just to be honest with you, I'm not the type of person yet who hears Heschel say this and goes, Oh, yeah. But I want to become that type of person who knows the Sabbath as that, the most precious present. Just think of this. All week we think the spirit is too far away and we succumb, I love this, to spiritual absenteeism. Or at best we pray, send us a little of thy spirit. I imagine you pray with doth and thy and all your old English. So it's like, send us a little of thy spirit on the Sabbath. The spirit stands and pleads, accept all excellence from me. Could you imagine the spirit of the living God standing before you, beckoning, pleading with you, I've got all excellence for you. Yet, what the Spirit offers is often too august, too lofty for our trivial minds. And I don't think that Heschel is trying to diminish like our capacity, our imagination, our curiosity. I think he's just saying it, it feels too good to be true. It's almost overwhelming. And if you've been tracking, this is nothing new. I mean, we've been covering these contours of the Sabbath more or less for the past month. And maybe, maybe you've begun to like just dip in, just dip your little toes into the Sabbath. Maybe you've tried a meal or, or just a moment or just you've, you've pondered it more and you, maybe you've even tasted some of it. And so as you hear Heschel, there are some like hallelujahs and amens that are coming up internally. I know they are internal. I just, what I know to be true is that your hallelujahs and amens, they're internal and I see it on your faces. So um, there we go. That was for me, not for you. I'll keep preaching. Uh, But again, if you're new to this, or it just feels new every time we talk about it, just hear this. Before the Sabbath came as a command, before Exodus 20, you need Genesis 1 and 2. Before Sabbath came as a command, it came as a gift given by God to humanity because he's there joyfully entering into it with all of creation and beckoning us to come. And so it's with this in mind, kind of like the Spirit standing and pleading with us to accept all of His excellence. It's with that in mind that I just invite us to consider Jesus' words afresh in our teaching text as we think about Sabbath feasting. So this is Mark 2, 27. Jesus has this word for us. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now you may or may not remember this. We taught through the gospel according to Mark. It was a blasty as the kids say. I don't know if the kids are actually saying that, but maybe they should start saying it. Um, You probably don't remember our teaching on this text, so let me just give you a little refresher, because these words taken by themselves, they're intriguing. 
you might go, oh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But then, like, the next thing happens. So it's the context that fills Jesus' words out. So I just want us to pick up from a few verses before this. This is in verse 23. Hear Jesus, uh, hear this account on, on Jesus on the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, like you do. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Now just pause right there. This is a little Bible nerdery coming your way. Um, there is no rule against snacking on the Sabbath in the Torah. Okay? Do you have that? No, no rule. We covered this in the past weeks. If you remember from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the law simply states, you shall labor for six days, and then on the seventh, you shall keep that as a Sabbath unto Yahweh, or a Sabbath set apart for Yahweh or the Lord your God. And what this means is that labor or work is kind of ambiguous. And I think the ambiguity of work is this frustrating gift. Here's what I mean when I say frustrating gift. A few weeks back, I came to my wife, Jessica, to help me think more concretely. If you have had any conversations with me, I love the conceptual, like 30,000 or beyond feet. Um, that's, I love that space. So what, what are the implications of it? But Jessica, she's a, I like how uh, Christy Heinemann will say it, she's a just the facts ma'am kind of gal. And so I needed help, and so I come to her so she could pastor me. And uh, th these are the component parts of Sabbath. Remember, ceasing, resting, feasting and delighting in worship. So we're going through these things and we're trying to get practical and we come to this feasting bit and I just remember the conversation shifting and she looks at me with this look that like draws me to a halt. Um, if you've seen the look, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, she goes, oh, feasting, that just makes me think of dishes. Meanwhile, I'm thinking about like a cornucopia of delight, and I'm thinking about ultimate satisfaction and feasting on God, and she's like, yeah, but practically that just means I'm doing dishes. So, so, so do you do the dishes on the Sabbath? Do you let them soak? Are, are there any soakers in the house? I don't know. Like, yeah, do you, what do you do? Like, what about the cooking before the feast? Do you do that on the Sabbath? What if you enjoy cooking? Is that actually like worship unto God? Uh, I mean... What if while trying to feast, you accidentally break the Sabbath while you're trying to keep the Sabbath? Do you feel the tension? And if you don't, uh, welcome to like millennia old debate on how to keep the Sabbath. This is past, present, and I imagine future the debate that is gonna be up and around the Sabbath. This was the debate that we just read about in Jesus' day in Mark 2. It's the debate that prompts Jesus' words in our teaching text. And so, back to the context. The Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples snacking, and they and just hear how it registers for them in verse 24. The Pharisees, these are like the scholars of the day. They have a zeal in their heart to see God's renewal break out. They see Jesus and his disciples snacking, and this is how it registers, verse 24. The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, remember, there is no explicit prohibition against snacking. So what are they talking about? Well, just take note of Jesus's response. This will, this will help unpack this. And Jesus answers, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? The Bible is funny. If you uh, like, so let me just tell you why this is funny. Jesus is talking to Bible scholars and he uh, says, have you never read 
Maybe it's just funny to me. Okay, we go. Have you never read? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful for the, only the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. In other words, in a time of need, God gave provision. And at first glance, it might just look like Jesus is opposed to the Pharisees and he's just, I don't know, giving them something to dis- like dissuade any t- type of engagement. And maybe, or maybe Jesus is dissolving the law. Maybe he's going to be against the law. But these, this is a really interesting exchange. And many scholars think that Jesus was a part of this religious tradition. I haven't uh, come to a conclusion, was Jesus a Pharisee giving an insider critique? It re- makes the stories read really interestingly. I don't know. Um, maybe if you have a conclusion that's compelling, share it with me. But that, it's, it's so curious to me that there in this moment, Jesus, he's not rebuking the law. He's, in some sense, challenging their interpretation of the law. Because in their zeal, they wanted the people to keep the law. They wanted to see renewal come out. And so what the Pharisees did is they came up with this moral code of conduct around the law. It, what, what became known as building a fence. It's like if you go to the zoo... And uh, just if you've been to the zoo here in town, you know that when you come in and you get past like the little rainforest spectacle and you make your way into like the main area, there's eagles right there. But what they have is like this um, barrier and it's really annoying because then you have to like pick up your kids to put them closer so they can see the the actual eagle, you know, um, hypothetical scenario. But That's, in in essence, what the Pharisees are doing. They are building this fence because they don't want you. Now, just uh, like a code of conduct here, don't, like, do that. Because eagles, apparently they have these talons and they'll, like, gouge and I don't know. They say don't put the kids closer, but how are you going to see them? I digress. So this is what they're doing is they don't want the kids to be gouged by the eagles. And so they don't want people to break the Sabbath. They want people to keep and honor it. So they're like, okay, this is how you're going to do it. This is the fence. These are the contours of how to do it. But what this is doing, while keeping people back, they're holding up human tradition as law. I've heard it said that Jesus is pro-Torah. He's pro the instruction of Yahweh, but he is anti-Mishnah. Those codes of conduct, the building of the fence, they become codified as the Mishnah. Jesus is pro-Torah, anti-Mishnah. And so the Bible scholars of Jesus' day, they appeal to their interpretation of the law, but then what Jesus does is he goes to the actual instruction of the law, and he quotes chapter and verse to them to give an answer, an explanation of God's provision in the face of need. And then we get to our teaching text. So recap. One Sabbath, Jesus is on a stroll. He's with his disciples. They're feeling the hungers. They notice there's grains of field. Uh, in the law, there's provision for those who are hungry to pick grains of it. So this is, they're just right there. They're enjoying God's provision, the bounty of creation. But the Pharisees, they see this interaction and they start to beef with Jesus. He gives them an answer that they'll understand. And then he says again, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And for Jesus' audience, the punchline is in the second verse, or the, the second bit of verse 27. It's the, the declaration that humanity is not ruled by the Sabbath. And maybe if you're like a type one on the Enneagram or something, like you need to hear that you don't have to be ruled by this. Like maybe you've heard this uh, teaching series coming through and like you're like, I'm concerned that I'm going to make this into some legalistic enterprise. Like I'm concerned that this is going to give way, like my intimacy with God is going to be obstructed by law keeping because it's grace, not law. And so what I would say is just like, don't be legalistic then. 
Like, just don't do it. Instead, hear that, that, that second bit. Hear that you don't have to be ruled by the Sabbath. But this is, this is my guess, is I don't think most of us are scandalized by those words. I don't think that's the punchline for us. Because for most, I mean, we live in a country that is, like, defines itself. We have a forthcoming holiday where we, like, throw up um, bombs that explode in the sky because we threw off the oppressor. Like, we, we, like, we revel in throwing off those things. It's just kind of woven into uh, the fabric of our country. So those words don't have the same punch. I think what, what actually is meant for us is the first bit of verse 27, namely that the Sabbath was made for man. Or better, better translated, the Sabbath was made for humanity, for you and for me. And the, the writer, uh, John Mark Comer, he, he makes this observation I really found arresting, and he says this. He says, we have the exact opposite problem to a first century Pharisee. It's not that we have hundreds of legalistic rules and all sorts of nonsensical reg regulations about the Sabbath. It's that we don't have any at all. And so again, if your concern is that you would drift into legalism, don't. Like, just don't do it. And you're like, but you don't know, it's my personality, it's my stage of life, it's all this stuff. I get it. So bear with me. When we cease and allow God, the good shepherd of our souls, to actually rest us, to rest our souls. We talked about this when we talked about Psalm 23. This is what God's doing. He's bringing us to places of abundance. When we allow God to be God and to rest our souls and then to receive him as the one who's pleading before us to accept all of his excellence, when we allow that to happen, there's something that will take place, this type of like feasting, because we move from ceasing into resting and then we begin to feast. We get to partake in the abundance. We actually receive the excellence of God. And I just, I, I thought about this this morning, is I just, I really find it strange, I was just reflecting my own life, like, all of the pleading that takes place before God, I plead for a particular type of life, or uh, make the case that we're burnt out, and we're burnt out by the world's demands, by our work's demands, by even the demands that a church like Gateway would place on us. And those, those demands, they may be real, they might be legitimate, they might be too much. I can't really make a judgment on that for you. But I just find it equally strange that God holds open wide the doors of his heart to satisfy our hearts, and then he names that path, calls it rest, and invites us to receive it, to feast on rest, and yet still we plead. This is a silly illustration because it's so plain, I don't know, but it's, it's the one where there's a flood. And maybe you've heard it. If you haven't, you're welcome. Like there, there's this flood and it comes, the, like it's, it's pressing on the breakers and the breakers give way and now the flood waters are encroaching on all the houses and they continue to rise and they come to the point and they force a person up onto his house. He's there with whatever possessions he could manage to bring up with himself and like a little dinghy comes by and offers him a way out and he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm praying God will deliver me. And then, you know, like a, 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 another dinghy comes by. No, 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 God will deliver me. Eventually, like a helicopter, you know, the Coast Guard type of, like, is coming by. And he says, no, 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 God will deliver me. And eventually the floodwaters come and he meets his end. 
the punchline of this little illustration is that he like gets to the, to the heavens and he's there in the presence of God and it's like, well, I was praying for you to deliver me. And it's like, well, did you see the dinghy times two? I, I brought out the, the chopper. Get in the chopper is, is what he's saying. And it's like, in some sense, we're pleading, we're exhausted and it's like, God, won't you deliver me? And it's as though God is like, do you see the door of my heart open wide? Like to cease and to rest and to feast and start where you are, not where you're not. It's as though God is pleading with us. I don't know if you grew up in a tradition that like had that mental picture of a God who would move towards you in such a way, such an intimate capacity and say, I see your pain, I see where you are, and there's a different way to live in the world. But that was just what was strange to me. It might not be to you. But I think that indeed is the strange beauty of the Sabbath. It's this new dimension, a palace in time, where we are able to connect the gift to the giver. It's where we're able to actually feast. And if this sounds like really strange, that Sabbath feasting would be about connecting the gift to the giver, I, I get it, but I just wanna name this. Um, we are surrounded by feasting. It is so easy to feast. Because we can feast at almost any moment with like the tap on a screen, you can satisfy almost any appetite. You can even gorge yourselves on whatever you want until all of your bodily desires give way. And bless God for the ability to like order food on an app. How cool is that? What a gift that is. And yet, it also poses this unique threat that we never have to like burrow into the depths of what that true desire may be because as it's said elsewhere, like your, str like your strongest desire, your most presenting desire may not be your deepest desire. So you might be hungry, but you also might have just had like this relational spat with your best friend. And so your hunger then is to mask the pain of, the, of that relationship and the desire for repair. So you can satisfy your pain with whatever that thing might be, the food, the sex, the adventure, but still that repair is needed. See, it's, we are surrounded with this feasting. If we're unsatisfied with our job, we can blow off steam with a cocktail after work. If we're unsatisfied with the dating scene, there's an app for that. If we're married and unsatisfied with our love life, there's pornography or Ben and Jerry's or more work, like feasting, however, True feasting in the biblical imagination. It's not primarily about consumption. It, it's about celebration. Like feasting, Sabbath feasting moves you from consuming to celebrating, to connecting the gift to the giver. Because Sabbath is the place where we're able to join God, to receive from him. We celebrate on the Sabbath the one who gives everything by enjoying the things he gives. Like, and then this is the peculiar place, or the, the curious place to me is like, I think for a lot of us, we have to wrestle that God would actually say you're worth giving something to. I don't know if that's true for you, but I've had to learn that like God looks on me with affection. God looks to me first, God comes. And just think about Jesus' prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father in heaven. What are the first words? Our Father, not my Father. Our Father. With this parental love, God looks to us and wants to give. 
But that is sometimes really hard to receive if we have a woundedness in our heart from our own family. Or if we just carry this pain in our heart that I'm not good enough or I don't measure up, the Sabbath disrupts that and then also invites us into healing. It, it moves us from consuming to celebrating. It draws us to God. It connects us to the gifts he wants to give us. And then we strangely, it's not just that we're like enjoying really good food, which is a part of it for sure, but then we begin to feast on God himself. And if you're thinking, well, you're talking about your quiet time, kind of, but it's more. It's just like, like the, the psalmist in Psalm 119, it says, I've stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Like I've, in some sense, I've buffered my life by your word so that I might keep in step with you. But wh where, when? On the Sabbath. You sing the songs, you, you hear the words of God and they're for you. They're like, they're your true spiritual food. And, and perhaps you're thinking there's all these rebuttals, this resistance. You're like, but that's for the spiritual elite. Or like, you have no idea. I have small humans in my life and I don't have the margin for this. I don't have it. And I, I say, where you are, Sabbath can come because it's God who's opening up his heart to you, not you who have to scrounge and make a way for it. No, so where you are, if you're gonna have a meal with friends, maybe, maybe you're at the point where you share with them, this is gonna be a Sabbath for me. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's this like private little moment between you and the Father, you're like, this is my Sabbath delight. And so what you do is, because this, this is just where you are, you're like, I don't pull my phone out. When everybody's like, who is it that sang that song? Was that, oh gosh, you're like, nope. And you're like, God, maybe you'll help me remember. And you just have these moments. Maybe that's where you are. And it's as simple as that. And so you go to bed and you like, you thank God. You're like, Lord, give me your rest. And that's what you have. You have a meal in eight hours. Bless God, maybe 10 if you're sleeping in. And you're like, that's God's refreshment. Before Sabbath comes as a command, it comes as a gift. And the feasting is where we begin to connect it. And so I just want to kind of bring this together as we make our way to a close. Because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that feasting sounds more accessible, but also really strange. Because I just a second ago said feast on God, and that might be weird. It's been weird for a long time. Christians, uh, the ancient contemporaries of followers of Jesus, they used to call Christians cannibals because they would feast on the blood or feast on the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. So let's just talk about that for a second. If we're talking about feasting, let's just go to what Jesus says. This is in John chapter six. Let this blow your mind this morning. John six, verse 53, and Jesus said to them, these are the people that he's like fed He's, he's, he's fed. He, the food has been multiplied. There they come back to him. This is in John 6. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. No amens. Okay. Um, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. I don't know if Jesus was just trying to like thin the crowds out at that point. Maybe. But this is in no way a normal way to talk about eating and drinking. Can we agree? Okay. So what is Jesus getting at? 
Hear verse 55 again, because it's so offensive. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Apparently, there is a type of nourishment that we need, which only flows through Jesus, but it comes actually by, like, eating Jesus, taking his life into our own. It seems as though Jesus is promising a new quality of life here and now. He calls that eternal life. And yet it also has implications for the resurrection. So it's like a new quality of life breaking in now with resurrection hope in the future. And it all comes through his body. And maybe you see where I'm going with this. But let me just draw on Jesus' words here because I, I, I think this is a really simple and beautiful connection. Just as the Spirit of Jesus stands before us on the Sabbath and pleads for us to receive all of his excellence, so too Jesus stood before the crowds pleading with them to take in his life, to take in his excellence and live See, God does not hold the goodness of his loving provision, and yet it seems as if that he is willing to name a pathway, like a narrow pathway to partake in his grace. So here, Jesus, in our teaching text, back in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's that phrase. Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. We hear that in John 6. For unless, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so the same, the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. The crowds, they came to Jesus because he multiplied the loaves, but he wanted to give them something truer than just that bread, the manna of heaven. He wanted to give him the true source of life himself. How weird that must have been to like hear, what is this crazy rabbi? He doesn't even have a home. How is he going to bake? What is he talking about? God does not withhold his goodness, but he names the pathway to come to him. Sabbath feasting is that pathway. It, it is a way. And unlike the feasts that, that accompanied the festivals in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, or even the festivals that lined, you know, grand here, it's like, it's, it's different. It is a, a substantially different type of feasting. It's not a parade of stands with sweet and savory smells or a bar with drinks to dull the senses. It's the opposite. Sabbath feasting draws on our senses. It, it, it intends to draw on all of them and then route them, direct them toward God who can be the one who truly satisfies our heart. Feasting, I mean, if you've ever had like a delicious feast... I'm talking like all the helpings. Like you, you at the end, you're like, Poof. you maybe even like do the thing where you unbutton. No. Am I the only one? Come on. Okay, so like it's sumptuous. It, it like it's, it, but, but the Sabbath is more because the food is not the end. God is the end, and God's inviting you to feast on him. And I just, church, I think, have you ever had that moment where it's in, like, worship through song, and you, like, feel like, like I don't know, something's about to break loose in your soul, and for me, usually, it's, like, tears, and it's, like, but you look around, and you're, like, nobody else has moved. Oh, gosh. 
And so you like, you, you clam it up, you hold it in. I think in those moments, God's like, let it out, baby. Like God wants to, he, he wants to open us up, create portals in time where we can be open to him and him to us. And Sabbath feasting is such a place in time where we connect the gift to the giver, where we see that Sabbath came before it was a command. It was indeed a gift. And we get to feast on, yes, whatever the gift is, but it's, a, it's to direct us to the one who gave the gift. I'm like belaboring this because I want us to taste. I want us to see that indeed the Lord is good and that we can do this. We can curate. We are the type of people who can curate our lives to taste the goodness of God. So that if there is pain, if there is pain that we cannot remove, pain we didn't choose, but it is there, we know that every single day is but one day closer to the portal of God's presence that Sabbath opens up, that it's coming every week. It is coming. That is the goodness of our God. And if at this point, having talked about Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and eating the flesh of Jesus, if it sounds like I'm blending the Sabbath and communion, you're exactly right. It's because I am. See, I'm insisting on Sabbath feasting, a physical act where we encounter the divine because Sabbath is, yes, theological and it is spiritual. The Eucharist is both theological and spiritual. But do you realize that we are like embodied? Just for, for a moment, just hold up your hand and then touch your face. And just give it a little smack. Did you feel that? Okay, you're here. You're here. But can you like hold up your hand and like give God a little smack? Well, like it's not the same effect. I guess you can. Like God is, but God is spirit. So we, there's like a different way we commune. And so what God gives us as a gift is a meal to take in this tangible. And whether you think it's symbol or substance, I don't really care. But God gives us a gift of a meal to take into our bodies. And, and what does the meal represent? It represents his brokenness so that in our brokenness we might be made whole. It's the pouring out of the new covenant of forgiveness in his name and we taste the sweetness of the juice or the wine, whatever our conscience allows. And we take that in so we might be renewed. And what I'm and this, is, this is where this is all heading, folks, is that little cup is not going to satisfy you the way breaking bread and opening a bottle of wine or even those fifth Sunday meals. It's not going, that's, a, that's like a symbol pointing toward the feast. We get to practice now what eternity offers, like the great marriage feast, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Sabbath was made for us to know the one from whom every blessing flows to experience heaven's blessing in our body, a blessing we don't have to labor for, a blessing we don't have to fashion. Instead, we get to keep it. We get to cherish it. We get to remember it. We get to enjoy it. We get to feast on it. And so to close, these words from Marva Don, who I think says it best, we who are God's people can teach the rest of the world that intimacy involves every aspect of our being. Sabbath feasting is not about gluttony. It's not about consumption. It is about celebration. And if we can become the type of people who celebrate God's goodness in the mundane thing or even in the feasting as a way to say this, and we're connecting the gift to the giver, 
it has ripple effects because it brings us to God, but it also connects us to our neighbor. It connects us to those whom we love in Christ or even those who annoy us in Christ. Like, that's what it is to be a part of a family. And you know what? You can have a table. It can be like the kinfolk table with the choicest food and the best drinks. But if that table is only set for one, there is no feasting. Sabbath feasting, and the Sabbath in general, is to draw us to God and community. Today, we're going to meet afterwards. We're going to talk about, you know, like, what is, what is this little community here called the Gateway Church? And at some point, there's going to be, a, like, a moment where you can pause and just ask, like, who are the people who are helping to facilitate this? That's a great question to bring in that time. Because there are tables that are open, ready to receive. Because Sabbath is hardly a prohibition. It's about heaven's welcome. And if you keep it, beautiful. If you don't, I'm still going to keep it. Like, I'm going I'm to try. We're going to try and curate our life to do it because I have found that I need the faithfulness of God. And I need the faithfulness of God to, like, come to bear on my actual body. I need a ritual to remember that God is who he says he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I need the faithfulness of God. And perhaps in your rhythm, what might work best for you is that your Sabbath actually comes to this place, that you, as we'll come in this next week, delight as worship, your Sabbath might be able to end here.